Support for Small Joys comes from the Columbus Foundation, celebrating the creativity that inspires and strengthens the Central Ohio community every day. More at columbusfoundation.org. WOSU Public Media, this is Small Joys. I'm Hanif Abdurraqib. For this episode, my guest is Carlotta Penn. Carlotta is a children's book author and founder of Daydream Press. Her most recent book, The Turtle with an Afro, came out last summer. In addition to her literary work, she holds a PhD in education and works in the Office of Equity, Diversity, and Global Engagement in Ohio State University's College of Education. I was excited to talk with Carlotta about books and representation in media, a subject that she is passionate about. This episode is special because we actually have two guests on the show. Carlotta's newborn baby daughter was with her in the studio when we recorded our conversation, and that was a real joy. Carlotta and I started off by discussing the books we read and connected to when we were young readers. The first thing I wanted to jump into, because I'm so curious with children's book authors, uh, is what kind of children's literature were you drawn to when you were young? Hmm. So when I was younger, first of all, I've always really loved reading. And my mother was a reading teacher and a kindergarten teacher. And so she, you know, shaped our, our reading habits by, um, you know, reading as much black literature as we could. Um, and so I, well, I should say books with black characters, not necessarily written by by black authors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as a very young child, um, I, I actually remember our two favorite books. One was called George the Babysitter. It's so strange because it's about this white, uh, white family and they've got a male babysitter, which I think is really interesting because that's not the stereotype of a, a little kid's babysitter. Um, and then there was this book about a chimpanzee, so neither of which were, were about um, black families. But as I got older, I really got into um, Virginia Hamilton. And so yes. she's like my, um, as, as I remember my, my young reading years, she was, she was my favorite. Uh, Mildred D. Taylor, you know, her text as well. Um, I, I remember, I think I read Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry mm-hmm. several times. And I have to be, I have a terrible memory. So I remember the book cover and like the essence of the book, but I couldn't tell you what happened in that story. <laughs> but I remember, you know, I was just still, I'm still left with just the memory of just being connected to those stories and finding um, parts of myself in those stories and then really discovering um discovering life of black culture that I that I wasn't familiar with. And so a lot of those stories, um, you know, taking place in, in family sort of lifestyles that were different from my own, but I still just, I was just so intrigued by it and interested. And I talk about how when I was in fourth grade, uh, my teacher, you know, was at a parent-teacher conference and told my mother that you know, I was a great reader, but she was concerned that I was only drawn to black text. <laughs> and I just, um, you know, again, that's one of those things that I just remember thinking, why, why is, why is that a problem for why you? Why is that a concern? Yeah. Um, so again, though, like titles might elude me, but I, I just know that I was just drawn to and, and enveloped in black literature. I would love to talk. I mean, Virginia Hamilton means so much to me as someone who 
you know, she's one of my favorite writers, period, but definitely one of my favorite Ohio writers. And I remember, uh, I don't remember, I just remember at such a young age um, getting um, handed a couple books of hers, but first and primarily, The People Could Fly. Mm-hmm. I mean, you talk yeah. about remembering covers. I really remember that I remember cover. that cover, too. Yeah. You know, like the old and it man was a large clouds. book. Was, yeah, yeah, really big. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that was, in a way, you know, that wasn't a kid's book by size, perhaps. It was like over 100 pages. Right. Uh, but it felt like there's something about folk tales that I think feel like they are meant to spark childlike wonder or perhaps childlike excitement. And that was also the first time I, I heard or read Black Folk Tales. Yeah, and I think I, that's a book that I, I recall discovering in my mother's classroom. And again, she taught kindergarten and first grade. And, um, you know, she's a black woman who taught black children. And she gave them as much <laughs> black culture as she could. But what I remember thinking about that book, and I still think about it to this day, is just the title. Because do you ever fly in your dreams? Yeah. Like, you know, I, I yeah. remember just thinking, like, just connecting that sensation of being in flight in my dreams to, you know, just to the notion of this book. And um, I don't know, I guess, you know, one could think about what that what that means, just the idea of, of being in flight, especially as a black person. I love that. You know, I don't, I, it's interesting because I somewhat dread the experience of, of flight in my normal life. There is something, though, about the dreamlike state of flying where one can be suspended uh, outside of the machinery of an airplane where they're right. propelled by their own body. That's kind of fascinating. Right. And I think I remember being a kid and just feeling, loving the title of that book and also feeling like it was signaling to me a better place or a place where I had more options for, you know, what my living could look like. Yeah, and I, I'm terrified of flying in planes. Like I'm just, I'm just sure I'm gonna die every time. And so how I get through it is I don't take medication, but I just remind myself that it's a miracle. Like this is just, yeah. you're just experiencing a miracle. So just go with it. Go with the, you know, with the good ending of this miracle. And and again, that's kind of the same. That sensation of just, I don't know. It's an odd sensation because I'm dreaming, but I just feel like. Um, you know, anything could happen. Anything is possible um, in that moment. And it's weird. It's always weird. Dreams are weird anyway. So it's always like something strange happening. But Speaking of miracles, I, I really love the turtle with an afro. And I think it is a somewhat miraculous offering. Are you someone who, like, what is your kind of um, journey as a children's author are you someone who was kind of like well i had kids and i wanted to find a way to create books for them to see themselves in or did you kind of have these dreams before children were a part of your life i would say a mix of the two and particularly when thinking about the turtle with an afro and so i'll, I'll go back to my first book as a way to get to the turtle with an afro so i've written my been a writer my you know as long as i could write i was a you know, a poet for many years. And and then, you know, I sort of dropped off po uh, writing poetry and, and focused on songwriting in my early 20s. And, um, you know, I've done academic writing and, you know, essays, you know, that kind of um, prose writing. Well, so, and, and my mom is a teacher, as I told you. And so growing up, you know, we always talked about writing. Um, and my father 
said to me, you know, I don't, again, I don't know what age I was, but I, it was later in my teens or maybe in my early, very early 20s. Uh, we would sort of always talk about writing children's books without really having true aspirations. Like, I was never aspiring to become a children's book writer, but it was just sort of always in the air in our family. So he said, you know, I always wanted to write a book called The Turtle with an Afro. Now, my dad is a black man who grew up in Columbus um, mm. in the seven, you know, during the 70s. And when he said that, I, it just didn't make sense to me. So I, I didn't pay it any attention. So this has now been, you know, over 20 years ago. And my father has since passed away. He, he died about 10 years ago. So I wrote my first children's book. And then I, I did write that because I wanted to dedicate um, a book to my daughter. So I had um, started trying to have children and had um, two consecutive miscarriages. And, um, and, you know, in the course of going online, Googling, like, you know, sort of connecting with um, mothers who have experienced miscarriages uh, came across this concept of the rainbow baby, which is, you know, a child born, you know, healthy and alive who survives after, you know, a, someone's experienced a loss of a child, of an infant. And I loved that concept, and I had written a song called um, Rainbows. So I spent my, what was my third pregnancy, revising that song into a book to dedicate to my daughter. Well, knowing what I know about culture and representation, you know, it was also important to me in writing that, that I, I recognize that there's there's few books that um, center black children and black stories and especially black authors. Um, and my daughter, my husband is Ethiopian, so my daughter is, you know, has that, brings that heritage. And so that is the, the setting of that story is Ethiopia. And, and that book was a dedication to my daughter. So that's really why I wrote that. But after I wrote that, I realized that I liked it. So I said, okay, I'm going to keep doing this and let's see what the next idea is. And then I remember my dad saying, I want to write this book called <laughs> The Turtle with an Afro, or you should write this book called The Turtle with an Afro. So I said, okay, strange concept, but let me see if I can do it. And so I tried writing like how the turtle got an Afro. And I was mm -hmm. like writing this story about a turtle who, um, you know, it was I was trying to write like a fable or, you know, thinking about, oh, the people could fly, you know, like right, trying to write right. some kind of story like that. And it just didn't work. So I just sort of left it alone. And then um, as the cliche goes in a, in a dream, I woke up one night and I just had this story um, that eventually became the book. And so um, so, you know, I just woke, woke up and wrote that down that first draft and, and started working with that book. And um, and so that's how The Turtle with an Afro came to be. It was my father's idea and just sort of, again, born out of born out of dreams. I'm interested in this kind of relationship with hair. You know, it seems like there's been such a a really generous and thoughtful revival of media that revolves around black hair. Some of it, I think, more thoughtful than others, of course, as these things go. Mm -hmm. But um, I mean, I remember being a kid and not seeing much about hair at all. Um, yeah. And, you know, that did not always impact me. You know, like I grew up in a household where my brothers cut my hair. I didn't start going to barbershops until I was like 18. Uh, I didn't go to like a barbershop salon type spot till I was like in my early 20s. So like my relationship with hair was very formatted in a home and I was raised Muslim and, and, and my mother and sister covered their heads. And so, you know, I, I find myself now really actually invested deeply in the work of, I think particularly as I get older, 
the work of taking care of my hair and thinking about hair as a gift. Uh, um, beards especially. I'm very, very particular about my beard. Okay. But, but um, have, have you always had an interest in, this is maybe a very specific but also broad question, have you always had an interest in, in hair as a vessel for pride and affection and all of these things? Or was that something that you began to think about when you wrote the book? No, so I, uh, my household again was pretty, you know, my, militant. It, just in a sense that my mom like taught us to say I'm black and I'm proud. And mm-hmm. um, I attended middle and high school at Columbus School for Girls. And so I was one black girl among a sea of white girls whose hair was very different from mine. And um, again, my mom will say that that, you know, that actually made me more proud of my culture because I sort of, you know, maybe a little bit of rebellion just really, you know, wanted to shine as a, as a young black girl. And my hair was part of that. So I was always, you know, we call it natural, but, you know, I was always wearing my natural hair and I have, you know, sort of curly kinky hair so I wore it out and um, wore my twist sets and all of that and at Columbus School for Girls swimming was a requirement for all students Um, you have to learn to swim to graduate and so the black girls were always sort of rebelling a little bit about against swimming because you know as you know we might get our hair done and then you know you Mm -hmm. get in the pool and that (laughs) the wig is busted you know And so in those kinds of ways, like thinking about hair, I guess, politically and culturally, you know, was there from early on. Um, So anyway, so I I ended up writing, you know, The Turtle with an Afro. And what I personally, you know, was trying to do with the book and like about the story is that I consider it, you know, to not be a response to the white gaze, really. You know, like the book is not about loving black hair as it's compared to straight hair or white hair. It's just really about the experience of having unruly kinky hair. And that's, I do think that that is a unique aspect of the perspective of this book is that I'm not really in conversation with others who find, you know, curly hair different or bad or with a protagonist who feels like because her hair is curly, it's bad. Um, this character accepts the curly hair for what it is, but it's just like struggling to <laughs> struggling to be okay with it at, at a particular time when styling it. I also took the experience of styling hair, like from a mother to daughter or, you know, a, a parent to child or caregiver to child, that that really is a unique experience. And so mm-hmm. although, you know, many people are born with, with hair that grows out and needs to be styled, I do recognize now having a four-year-old daughter who, you know, now we spend a lot of time together doing her hair because it's not hair that you can just leave alone. I mean, it has to be groomed regularly. And that creates a a certain kind of relationship between, like I said, a mother and daughter, whoever is is doing that, um, is spending that time together. And so it is a uniquely black experience. Um, and, And to continue on in thinking about representation, again, my kids are watching mainstream television Mm -hmm. and they're already, you know, (laughs) they've already been brainwashed by it. And I have to work really hard. Like I started telling my daughter when she was, you know, maybe two and a half or three, like, 
choose something that has somebody who looks like you. And, mm. you know, like really being explicit with her about, I'm not letting you watch these shows today because you're not just going to watch shows that have um, white children in them. I, you know, I'll just flat out tell her that because I, it's so important to me that she doesn't fully accept that white girls are the star, you know, right, that right, right. that they're the norm and what they look like is what she should want to look like. So that was a very long answer. To that was a question. great answer. <laughs> you know, it's wild. I don't I don't um, I'm so out of the loop when, it, you know, I don't have any kids. And I my my nieces, I have a niece and, and she's a bit too she's like too grown now to watch like a, the kids TV shows. I'm so yeah. out of the loop when it comes to like children's television programming. But whenever I'm kind of around it or around people who are around it, they get very excited about where things have gone mm-hmm. from when when they were kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and that feels exciting to me in a way, even though I'm not really watching anything. Yeah, I, I don't really feel that. I mean, I... When I was growing up, my brother and sister loved cartoons. And it was like, you know, the Bugs Bunny cartoons and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I don't really remember any... I mean, who were the characters who were even white in cartoons back then? I don't know. But I certainly don't remember any black characters. But if I had to tell you now on Netflix, my kids, there's like Motown, there's like one show really with black children. So I still feel extremely <laughs> frustrated with it. I don't. And it was always such a weird thing. Like I remember the Weekenders and liking the Weekenders and the one black character in the Weekenders was named Carver and he was named after George Washington Carver. And I remember being like, oh, come on. You know, like, <laughs> right. It's a little heavy handed. <laughs> I mean, as someone who part of your work revolves around equity, Mm-hmm. And diversity and include. I mean, have you found in this past year that you have? Um, and I'm not asking you to at all, like <laughs> you know, complain about your work. But mm-hmm. have you have you had points of exhaustion where, because it does seem like a lot of places and people are just coming around on what equity and diversity in its fullest form can look like. Uh, have yeah. you found yourself kind of like running into a wall trying to explain that? You know what I find myself. Um wanting to wait it out but a lot of friends or associates or people that I've known over the years who are white reaching out and being really interested like in my books or you know just wanting to know what they could do and and that kind of thing which is which is fine and great and appreciated um but my thing is let's let's see where we're at a year from now with this Mm -hmm. um because you know, I, I I will not get exhausted from people who, you know, who are um, wanting to learn more or know more about, you know, my experience or my work or, you know, how they as people can, you know, love others better. That's fine. But the test is how long they give it, you know. So I would say less so exhaustion and more so just, um, you know, <laughs> I've, I've told myself, let's, let's wait this out. Um, so maybe a little bit of skepticism. <laughs> How do you then stay optimistic? If you're kind of always thinking, I got, which I hadn't, trust me, when you said I got to wait this out, I get it, I'm there <laughs> and I've been there. And, I, and so this is a question I'm mostly asking for my own guidance perhaps, mm-hmm. but how do you stay optimistic? Okay. Or, or are you not optimistic? If you're yeah. not optimistic, that's fine too, because I am not an optimistic person. Oh, no, no. So that that's a great question. So I say critical race theory in my doctoral program and the founder of critical race theory, 
he tells this story of, of a black woman who, you know, she's asked how she can how she can continue. Um, and she ultimately responds that that. That's the only way forward. So it's not that necessarily you're optimistic because you really feel that things are going to change, but that it's it's the only way to survive. It's the only way to continue. Um, and so, you know, you don't fight against racism because you, you know, you necessarily believe it's going to change tomorrow. You fight against racism knowing full well that you might not see the end of it in your lifetime. I feel like it's 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 really an only choice. Um, in order to have any joy in life. I always say, I'm glad I'm, I'm average. <laughs> like, thank you, God, for making me just enough on, you know, on many fronts. Like, I'm just smart enough. You know, I'm sort of just creative enough because people who are geniuses seem to live really tragic lives. And people who give themselves over to, to their creative work or to their justice work um, or to their, you know, to their celebrity, um, mm-hmm. lose a lot and often mm-hmm. lose their lives. And um, you know, you're you know, you being from Columbus, you know, there was a couple of young people who I know who who decided not to continue on with their lives, being so uh, people who were so committed to justice work. And um, yeah, yeah. I just find it heartbreaking. Um, and and so I I say that to say that I know that racism is like smothering me. Right, it's all around me. Like it's it's impacting forces that are shaping my life that I do not see. Um, but if that's all that I think about, I'm just, I'm going to be miserable because it's it's miserable. I live in, um, you know, in Old Oaks, which is right by Old Town East, you know, near downtown, King yeah. Lincoln, yeah. you know, the hood. And, and so I have family who live in the neighborhood and I wanted my young nephew or cousin, like second cousin, my cousin's son, who's a teenage, young teenager, like 15, to come and start cutting our grass, but they don't have like a car. So he's very, he's like close. He could walk in 20 minutes to my house. And I was just like, I'm not asking him to do that because then I will feel responsible for whatever happens to him Mm -hmm. between his house and mine. That is a sick thing to think about in 2021. Yeah. You know, as, you know, as a black woman who, you know, has has grown up mostly, you know, without anything terrible happening to me. I've grown up, up privileged in, you know, in a lot of ways. That's the reality. So harping on that reality and knowing that I am afraid for my my own children and my nieces and nephews, all who live in the neighborhood, to walk around to play, not only due to the forces of, like, potential police violence, but just white violence and then violence from our own community. I mean, it's like it's coming at us from every direction. Um, so I, I get past it by having a little bit of healthy detachment from the reality and then just by doing what I can, you know, to seek joy and to, and to seek justice, and, you know, in the ways that, that I know how, in the ways that I, I have the energy to and, and that I'm blessed to, to be able to offer. So the last thing I kind of want to touch on, you know, and it feels appropriate in this moment too, every, I've been watching friends of mine parent during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. and adjust to parenting during the pandemic and so much of it as we see presented and I'm, I'm not I'm sure it is not easy but so much of it is about the challenges and the difficulties which I'm sure are very palpable but have you found some joys uh, or rediscovered discovered or rediscovered some some new joys in parenting that have swept through you during the pandemic yeah I have to say that it's one of those things that I accepted as this is a time in my life when when I 
when I when I'm privileged, when I can just say I was privileged. You know, I kept my job. Um, I was able to work from home and keep my job with a boss who was very understanding. Because that's a, that's those are like three separate things. Like you could work from home with your kids and have, you know, report to someone who doesn't get it. But that that's not been my experience. And so it was a joy to be home with. I mean, when when how often can, you know, a middle class person stay home with their families and be paid to do it? You know, like the the opposite of that is like dropping your kids off at 8 a.m., going to work, drive, you know, being in traffic, driving, spending so much time in the car, picking them up at five o'clock, you know, so. I was able to, you know, spend really important years, you know, with my kids being two and three, um, and now they're three and four, um, and I have, you know, this seven-week-old. And so I was able to, you know, be pregnant and work and have my kids with me. And there, so there was a lot of—last summer, I remember just so much—having so much fun with the kids. So so for that, I'm I'm thankful, and you know, and I was blessed. And and again, it was just about like knowing that so much is happening outside of my door, like literally outside of my door, um, and just being thankful for for my space, you know, my space of peace and healing and and family. So yes, lots of lots of joy amidst the you know horrors around us. That's wonderful, Carlotta Penn. Thank you for joining me, and I hope. Now that I know we're neighbors, I hope we can actually, you know, come together in in person in real life. Sounds good. Thank you. I appreciate it. At the end of every episode, I'll take some time to share one of my small joys. And this week, I want to kind of talk about returning to my roots as an athlete for no real purpose. Uh, I'm not trying out for any sports teams. I'm not really attempting to get in game shape for any reason. But when it got a little warmer out, I decided to get a basketball and I decided that I was going to go down to the park near my house and shoot baskets early in the morning, shoot jump shots until I made 50. That was my goal, making 50 jump shots before I get to start to work. Some mornings it's easier than others. And I have to admit that uh, if I miss maybe the first 10, then I'm likely going to just take my ball and go back home. I know when it's not my day and I don't want to force it. But... What I have loved about it is that I realized I missed the sound that was familiar for me growing up as an athlete of a basketball banging across the concrete, echoing throughout an otherwise empty park as the sun is coming up, as the breeze is starting to settle in, as the city starts to come alive with people on bikes, people walking to work, the kind of noise that is familiar to me about what I love about Columbus as a soundtrack while I kind of set out on this pointless but still joyful journey of shooting a basketball into a hoop and on the days where I get a good groove going on the days where I hit 10 in a row or 12 in a row or 14 in a row there's also nothing like that feeling that I remember from being young this brief spirited burst of accomplishment and working up just enough of sweat to remind me that I'm alive and I can move and that has been a real pleasure particularly because I think I spent so much of this past year in, in a somewhat immovable space in my home and trying to figure out if I could ever become comfortable with the world again. And so a part of this practice, I think, a part of this getting up early and taking my basketball and walking down to the park and sinking into the noise and the failures and accomplishments that come with shooting a basketball and a small target is that I am also reinvigorating myself 
with the practice of being in the world. I'm probably not yet ready for a music festival or a house party or a crowded airport, but just being on a court alone is something that I felt so terrified of about a year ago. And now I'm slowly inching back in the way I know how, and hopefully that inching back will lead to further and more generous inching backs into the world as the summer goes on. And as we spill into fall, which I must admit is my favorite season in this city, uh, I'm so excited for that. But first I know I have to get through the summer and I hope I can get through the summer joyfully and I hope that for all of you. Small Joys is a production of WOSU Public Media. The show is produced and edited by Michael DeBonis, sound engineering by Eric French. Nick Hauser is the chief content director of digital media. Special thanks to Leticia Wiggins for editorial support. Thank you for listening, and thanks to everyone who's been supporting us so far on Twitter and Instagram. I have so loved seeing the support for this show and the responses it's getting so far. When you do share the show on social media, it does really help to spread the word, so please keep that up. If you enjoy what we're doing, please also write a review on Apple Podcasts. We're back next week with some more Small Joys. Thank you for listening. Thank you.